Let's today talk about sometimes I feel completely inadequate. Sometimes I feel and think that I am completely inadequate. And here's my question. Have you ever felt somewhat or totally inadequate for a task or a role that you are about to engage in? In my life, there have been numerous times when I have felt inadequate. As a teenager, I felt totally inadequate in gym class, track and field days, unable to do what was expected of me, and honestly not wanting to do what was expected of me. When I went to seminary, I felt totally inadequate as I knew little to almost nothing about God or the Bible. When I became a priest, I felt totally inadequate personally and even more so professionally. My first funeral in a small town south of the city I currently live in, oh, did I feel inadequate. Becoming a husband, becoming a father, becoming a born-again believer, first time prophesying, planting a new church, witnessing on the streets, first trip overseas to the nation of Ukraine, working through a translator. Even today, some of the things I am called upon to do, I feel totally inadequate to accomplish. Writing a series of books comes to mind. Something I've done since COVID, teaching and leading through Zoom and other online systems. Here's the problem. Feelings of inadequacy lead to insecurity, and insecurity leads to uncertainty. Feelings of inadequacy can and often do lead to feelings of being insecure, and insecurity often leads to uncertainty. From the outside, it may look like I have it all together. I've accomplished a fair amount in my short lifetime. I'm told I appear confident and sure of what I'm doing when up front in a church. People have assumed I must be full of talent, wisdom, creativity, and spiritual energy. I've had people compliment my leadership, my teaching ability, my wisdom, my preaching. But I still feel somewhat inadequate, hoping to make it through the next challenge, hoping to get through the next demand placed upon my life. I did well in school, but only by working my butt off. An intellectual giant, I am not. I'm also an introvert and naturally a little shy. And so being with a lot of people a lot of time makes me uncomfortable and I have to work at connecting. I read my Bible, study God's Word, read a lot of books on the faith, yet most times I don't feel very spiritual. You see, we can appear to be something we are not. We can appear to be confident and secure in ourselves. And yet we have that feeling of not knowing enough, not being good enough, not doing enough, not contributing enough, not meeting some unexpressed standard. And so at one time or another, everyone, everyone can feel inadequate. Feelings of inadequacy, however, as I've already said, leads to feelings of insecurity and feelings of insecurity lead to uncertainty. <clears throat> this is a true story of a pastor whom I know. 
He writes, I've been haunted with insecurities for as long as I can remember, and it is not all in my head. I have concrete evidence proving my feeling of inadequacy. For example, the first funeral I officiated was a disaster. The deceased was a strong believer in her early 90s. Her death was a blessing, no more pain or suffering. She was gone to a much better place. It was a graveside ceremony attended by a couple of dozen people. All I had to do was show up, read some Bible verses, say some nice words, add a prayer, the epitome of a pastor's easy funeral, and I managed to mess it up. The granddaughter of the deceased wanted to sing Amazing Grace. Nice idea. Wrong pastor. The problem? I can't carry a tune. But in front of the grieving family and friends, I attempted to lead the grand old hymn. Unfortunately, for me and everyone there, the small congregation thought the song was a solo. Even the granddaughter left me hanging. No one joined in. While I tortured a classic, I saw people looking at each other as if to say, why would a guy who sings so badly perform a solo? Several lines into the song, a fly came buzzing around my face. I was focusing all my attention on my first ever and last ever solo when the fly zoomed straight into my mouth. Time froze, and I contemplated my options. Should I cough and spit out the fly as discreetly as possible in front of a grieving family? Or do I swallow a fly in the middle of amazing grace? If anything in my life would ever qualify as a no-win situation, this was it. Time unfroze. I decided to suffer for Jesus. I swallowed. I couldn't imagine things getting any worse. Having just ingested a live-winged insect, I ended the song early. I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Then things got worse. After a short prayer, I was heading down the home stretch, ready to end the funeral with the ashes-to-ashes ashes thing. Mustering my most authoritative pastor's voice, I started ashes-to-ashes, dust-to-dust, I hesitated. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What comes next? I honestly couldn't remember. That's when my train of thought derailed and wrecked. Big time. These people are sad, I reasoned. A little humor will do them good. The traditional funeral finishing words that I had just spoken still echoed off the surrounding tombstones. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. To them, I added the new, revised, inadequate ending, I hope this coffin doesn't rust. Rare is the person who appreciates my sense of humor, and he wasn't at the funeral. I felt completely inadequate. Now that's a funny story, yes, but I have been there. I have done that even forgotten the words to the Lord's Prayer in the middle of a funeral as I was standing in front of the mic leading the people in the Lord's Prayer. So a general observation. Some people come off as prideful. 
whether spiritually or in any other area of life. You know, a know-it-all, an answer for everything, always needing to add their two cents to every conversation. They live uprightly, and it seems everyone else is wrong or morally inferior, never measuring up, never smart enough, fast enough, vocal enough. These self-righteous, overconfident know-it-alls can be a real pain in the butt. However, more often than not, prideful people, who are generally just insecure people wearing a mask of pride, you know, I see people fighting the same battle I fight. Weighed down by deep feelings of inadequacy. Well, some may offer a resume filled with victories in their faith, their family, their career, their relationships. Mine seems to be overflowing with defeats, failures, self-doubts, fears, blunders, and insecurities. At weak moments in my life, I personally feel like I don't know enough. I don't feel that I'm good enough, and I've made so many mistakes. To be honest, most Christians feel like they don't measure up, that they are inadequate, because they look inside, and inside their own heart, they see jealousy, envy, pride, doubt, hatred, unforgiveness, a critical spirit, a gossiping spirit, ungodly competitiveness, a judgmental spirit, impatience, arrogance, ungodly desires. So maybe you feel the same way as many people I talk to feel. Too many doubts and not enough knowledge. Too many sins and not enough forgiveness to get past them. Too many bad decisions piling up one upon the other, creating a wall between you and God. But what we tend to forget when we have times of feeling inadequate is that God has enough grace and God has enough power to forgive every mistake and correct every flaw. So for those of us who at times feel trapped by our inadequacies, a look at some insecure, blundering, sinful Bible characters might help us to understand ourselves better. Notice first whom Jesus did not pick. Of those chosen to carry the gospel to the world, Jesus did not pick a single Pharisee, a single Sadducee, did not pick a scribe, didn't pick anybody from the spiritual elite, not one. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus also did not choose the best looking, the most talented, the best educated, or the most likely to succeed. Jesus chose 12 ordinary, sinful, insecure people, just like you, just like me. Chose a few fishermen, tax collector, an accountant, a political activist. Jesus named two of the guys Sons of Thunder. And this was not because they were born during a storm. This was because their reputation for wild living preceded them. Jesus' friends were the least unlikely people to become disciples. They were the partiers of their day, the cheaters, the liars, the traitors, the radical militants, the ones who the religious crowd despised. Jesus even hung around prostitutes. He surrounded himself with the lowest, the poorest, and the outcasts. 
and that encourages me. God prefers to use those who are ordinary. So if you feel like me and a few others who feel inadequate, you know, at times too stupid, too sinful, too mistake-prone, you feel like you'll never measure up, you don't have what it takes, if you feel like your best isn't good enough, embrace this thought. In fact, we call this thought a truth. God has prepared you to make a difference in this world. God has prepared you, as insecure as you may be, to make a difference in this world. And I want to look at three more lives, not just the lives of the disciples that Jesus picked, but three more. Fellow spiritual strugglers, deeply insecure, deeply inadequate, and I want to allow their examples to encourage you and myself towards kingdom greatness. First, there's the prophet Isaiah. His life teaches us that even if you've messed up big, God can and will still use you. Even though, if you've messed up big, God can and will still use you. After King Uzziah died, the whole nation of Israel panicked. And while seeking God, Isaiah, the prophet, had a very unusual life-changing vision. He saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And I'm reading to you Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and I'm reading it in the Passion Translation. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw clearly the Lord. He was seated on his exalted throne, towering high above me. His long flowing robe of splendor spread throughout the temple. Standing above him were the angels of flaming fire, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces in reverence, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The thunderous voice of the fiery angels caused the foundations of the threshold to tremble as the cloud of glory filled the temple. Then I stammered and said, Woe is me! I'm destroyed, doomed as a sinful man, for my words are tainted and I live among people who talk the same way. King Yahweh, commander of arm, angel armies, my eyes have gazed upon him. Then out of the smoke, one of the angels of fire flew to me. He had in his hands a burning coal he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, the burning coal from the altar has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is blotted out. After only a small glimpse of the holiness of God, Isaiah lamented, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Verse 5, Isaiah chapter 6. I noted first that Isaiah was aware of his own sin. With this brief brush with our holy God, Isaiah became actively aware of his sin, the impurity in his speaking, and thus in his heart. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks, as Jesus said. He had messed up big time. His unrighteousness stared him square in the face. 
If you feel inadequate because of your sin, think of all the other substandard people God used. Sometimes the greatest, the greatest were the ones who messed up the biggest. So let me repeat that. Sometimes the greatest were the ones who messed up the biggest. Moses murdered a man. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. Rahab was a prostitute. David committed adultery. Gideon was a coward. Paul the Apostle murdered a large number of believers. Peter was proud and arrogant. Thomas was riddled with doubt. Matthew was a traitor to his people. And God used all these mess-ups to do awesome things. So if you have messed up big, you're a leading candidate for God to use. So what should you do now? Exactly what Isaiah did. Confess your sin. Confess your shortcomings. Let God cleanse you. Let God forgive you. And as soon as that happened to Isaiah, the moment after Isaiah experienced God's grace and forgiveness, the Lord asked the forgiven man, Whom shall I send to my people? Who will go to represent us? And Isaiah answered and said, I will be the one. Send me. And God did. You see, here's the truth. God prefers to use those who are ordinary. And God, therefore, has prepared you to make a difference in the world. Isaiah teaches us, God takes you as you are, forgives you, calls, and sends you. God takes you as you are, he forgives you, he calls you, and he sends you. All right, that's the disciples, that's the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at Moses. He's another struggling Bible character who was totally inadequate, and he knew it. When I think of Moses, I picture an amazingly courageous leader full of determination to do God's will. But if you peel away his accomplishments and look at the real man, he does not look much different than you or I. Moses' life teaches us that God loves to use those who are unsure of themselves. God loves to use those who are unsure of themselves. God called Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. Then to increase Moses' confidence in God's ability, God performed some really cool miracles. But instead of thinking about God's power, Moses was zeroed in on his own powerlessness. In response to God's call, the not-yet leader complained in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, not since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, Moses said to God, I hate public speaking. I stutter. Get a good speaker, someone who loves to stand in front of large crowds. Count me out. I don't have what it takes. We need to remember, God doesn't choose the prepared, he prepares the chosen. God does not choose the prepared, he prepares the chosen. You don't have to feel ready or even be ready for God to use you. In fact, you probably will never feel ready. 
When God calls you, he prepares you, but he does that on the job while you're doing what he's called you to do. And with each step you take in faith, he leads you. So if you are unsure of yourself, you're in great company and you're at the top of God's potential disciples list. God spoke directly to Moses' greatest insecurity, his inadequacy, his fear of public speaking, by asking a series of probing questions. Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. In other words, God will use you in spite of your inadequacies and in spite of your insecurity, and he will often use you in the area where you are most insecure. In what life skill do you feel weakest? Public speaking? Leading? Praying? Witnessing? Teaching? Discipling? All of the above? Well, then all you need is God's grace. His power is made perfect in your weakness, in your inadequacies, in your insecurities. 2 Corinthians 12.9 But God said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So when you feel insecure, inadequate, remember that God can work more easily with insecurities than with pride. God is really ready to use you. And believe it or not, you're ready for his use. So Jesus prefers to use those who are ordinary, and Jesus has prepared you to make a difference in this world. And Isaiah shows us that God takes you as you are, forgives you, calls you, and sends you. Moses teaches us that God loves to use those who are unsure of themselves. A third biblical character who inspires me is David, King David. His life teaches that you are a candidate for God to use when others think you're not. So the lesson from David's life is that you are a candidate for God to use in big ways when others think you're not. God loves to use the unlikely. When David was just a boy, God saw something in him that no one else saw. God called the prophet Samuel to anoint the next king of Israel while Saul was still king. So Samuel visited the Jesse household, because that's where God told him to go, a home with several likely candidates for king. The first was Eliab, the oldest son. This guy had everything you'd expect a king to need or to have. He had the looks, he had the physique, he had the brains, he had the experience. But God said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The proud, hopeful father, Jesse, paraded seven of his sons in front of the prophet Samuel. 
and each time God said no. Only one son remained, the runt, the baby. Jesse, the dad, thought, him, the king, ha, he won't qualify. God has already passed over all the mature, intelligent, and talented ones in the family. So when Samuel asked if there were other sons, Jesse's reply was drenched in doubt. There is still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. The Jesse family was about to learn that God loves to use people whom others believe are unqualified. God loves to use people whom others believe are unqualified. As God told Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And it is noted in several places in the Bible that David was a man after God's own heart. So then God chose the most unlikely, the youngest, the shepherd boy, David. Why? Because God specializes in accomplishing his plans through unlikely people. Because God looks at the heart and not at the inadequacies you and I see and feel. So what have others told you that you can't do? What have you told yourself that you are inadequate to do? Have you told yourself that you could never be an anointed and effective Bible teacher? That you could never start a successful business, lead an organization, get a doctorate degree, and impact the world? Have you told yourself or others told you that you're never going to get out of debt? That you will never lead multitudes to the Lord? That you will never write a book, no matter what God has prophesied? God uses the unlikely. He may do through you what others say can't be done. He loves to use people who others don't believe are ready. God has put more in you than those around you can see. And he looks past what the world looks for. God isn't searching for great looks, a head full of hair, the perfect figure, or the smartest or the funniest person. God is looking at what he put in you. Quiet faith untapped courage, dormant gifts, a deep sensitivity to others, compassion, leadership, intelligence, determination, common sense. Others look at the outside, but God looks inside and sees those qualities, and he sees his perfect work. So Jesus teaches us that God prefers to use those who are ordinary, and that God has prepared you and me, the ordinary disciples, to make a difference in this world. The life of the prophet Isaiah teaches us that God takes you as you are, forgives you, calls you, and sends you. The life of Moses teaches us that God loves to use those who are unsure of themselves. He avoids the proud, but he deals with the humble. And David's life teaches us that you and I are a candidate for God to use when others think we're not. So here's the application. So what do you do when you battle with feelings of deep insecurity? What do you do if you battle with feelings of deep insecurity? Well, there's three things. Number one, don't believe everything people say about you, even those who are close to you and love you. 
Don't believe everything people say about you. Some believe that you can do no wrong, even though they love you, they'll never help you improve, and will often keep you from moving forward in the will of the Lord because they're refusing to speak the truth in love. Your friends may say that you write better stories than John Grissom, but don't believe everything people say about you. Your boss may say you are so important and the company can't do without you, but don't believe everything people say about you. Your loved ones may tell you how wonderful you are and really they want and need your presence and your attention, so they're buttering you up. Don't believe everything people say about you, even those close to you. Number two, don't believe everything your critics say about you. One of my mentors told me, the more you accomplish, the more you'll attract harsh criticism. Listen to constructive criticism. That's wise. Listen to and focusing on negative criticism. You will eventually become defensive. And God's people must always be on the offensive. Always be ready. The critics are coming. They won't like the way you parent. They will criticize the way you drive. They will be critical of the way you speak, the words you use. They will be vocal about what you're wearing. So don't believe everything your critics say about you. So don't believe everything people, even those close to you, say about you. Don't believe everything your critics say about you. But number three, remember that the only opinion that really matters is God's. Listen to what God says about you because he believes in you. So wrapping up, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Acts 4.13. Peter and John had been boldly sharing about Jesus. Some of the legalistic, overly religious leaders had them arrested and questioned. And Luke, the doctor, records their story. It's found in Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that these men, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. The Passion Translation reads, The council members were astonished as they witnessed the bold courage of Peter and John, especially when they discovered that they were just ordinary men who never had religious training. Then they began to understand the effect Jesus had on them simply by spending time with him. In other words, these were normal guys, just like you, just like me. In fact, the Greek word for ordinary or common is the word idiotis. Idiotis. It means unskilled. And it's the root word from which we get our word idiot. So these guys are just like you and me. Idiots. Not only were they idiots, but they were also unschooled. So I imagine they battled fears of not knowing enough, feeling seriously inadequate. They probably felt intimidated in front of crowds, feeling seriously inadequate. They had been commanded to make disciples around the world, feeling seriously inadequate. And they lived in a powerful empire that hated them and was out against their message. Again, feeling totally inadequate. But these men had been with Jesus, and that made them extraordinary. Don't listen to what anyone else says about you. 
Don't listen to the recorded tapes of negative words in your mind so easily accessed. Don't listen exclusively, exclusively to either your fans or your critics. Instead, think about your whole life, your relationships, your finances, your ministry, your work, your witness, your influence, your family, in light of what God says about you. Which means you and I need to spend quality time with Jesus and let him turn you and your whole life from an ordinary person into an extraordinary disciple. Sometimes I feel completely inadequate, and yet with God, I know I'm not.